tonight as we continue just our journey through the Bible, our journey through the big story of the Bible. We come to the book of uh, Joshua and specifically chapter 1. So if you have a Bible and you would like to turn there, that would be great. But for those who were here this morning and for those who are sort of following this series using the E100 book, you can't help but notice that what we're about to do is actually skip three entire books of the Old Testament, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now that doesn't mean they don't matter. But what it does mean is that I need to fill in a bit before we get to Joshua chapter 1. Now I did say we'd be finished by 10 past 8, so I'm going to try to to fill in three Old Testament books in uh, about five minutes. Uh, But I know you can spend all night doing it. But I sort of do need to draw your attention to a couple of key moments that that helps set the scene. Because after spending a year at Sinai receiving the law, the Israelites are then instructed by God via Moses to now leave and head for the promised land. And in preparation for that, a census is taken. thought it would just be topical and a good little reminder for you, if you haven't done it already. So Moses does a head count. And he counts 603,550 men. And along with their families, they all head for the promised land. And three days into the journey, the people start doing what they've become really good at. They start complaining and God reacts and his anger burns literally and Moses prays and the fire dies down and they travel a bit further and Canaan the promised land is within touching distance and so 12 men are chosen to embark on a on a scouting mission And one is taken from each tribe. And after 40 days, and that, as we're discovering, is a recurring time frame in the Bible. After 40 days in Canaan, they report back on their exploration. And their feedback contains a mixture of real excitement and sheer fear. The place looks great. It's lush. But the people look frightening. And the cities that they live in are fortified and they're intimidating. And as the rest of the Israelites listen to this feedback, they don't like what they're hearing. And so they revert to their default mode. They complain. They voice off and they say, if only, and we've said this before, if only we had died back in Egypt. In fact, it's probably better we go back to Egypt now. So let's elect a new leader and retreat. And Moses and Aaron, when they hear this, are devastated and they collapse in a heap in the ground. And then Joshua and Caleb, who were two of the spies, they step forward. And they encourage the people to focus on God rather than on people or on what might be. And they remind the Israelites, listen, God's with us and we should move forward and we should head on into this land. But the Israelites are having none of it. And so they reject Joshua and Caleb's advice and they actually contemplate stoning them. Now God has had enough and so he speaks to Moses and again, and this is something we're finding, he expresses his frustration, real frustration with his people. How long, God says, 
will they treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me? Despite all the miraculous things I have done for them. I'm going to strike them down. I'm going to strike them down with a plague. And I'm going to destroy them. But I'll start again with you. And I'll make you into a great nation. And again, this is something if you were here this morning, God has said before. And once again, Moses pleads with God. And this is something that Moses is getting good at. He pleads with God. And he reminds God of those critical and story-shaping words back in Exodus 34. God, you said you were slow to anger. You were abounding in love and forgiving of sin and rebellion. And God does forgive. But and here's the reality, and it's a reality of life that we all know too well. There are consequences. Yes, there is forgiveness. But there are consequences. And so God decides that apart from Caleb and Joshua, not one of the 603,550 men counted in the census are entering the promised land. Not one. They're all going to wander in the desert for 40 years. They're going to wander there and they're going to die there. One year for every day that the spies sussed out the promised land. And when the people hear this, they're completely distraught and they cry their hearts out. But for the next 14,600 days, they wander and they die. And then Moses dies. And just before he passed away, Moses got a glimpse of the promised land. But because of something he had done, and this is hard for me, I find this really difficult, I must admit. But because of something he had done, his own disobedience on one occasion, not even Moses was allowed to enter the promised land. Moses was an incredible man. He was a great leader, but with leadership comes great responsibility. And although you can get so much so right, you can also as a leader get some things so wrong. And although forgiveness is possible, consequences are often still inevitable. And during those 40 years of wandering, there's a new generation grows up. And they're ready for a new day and they're looking for a new adventure and they're ready to cross the Jordan and they're ready to enter the promised land but they're not ready to do it without new leadership and up steps or in steps Joshua. Now, for those who've been following this story, you'll know Joshua's not new here. He has been part of this for a long time. He actually was here 40 years ago, not just in Spain, but also he was the one who went up the mountain with Moses he was the one who came back down the mountain and found the people worshipping the golden calf. And plus, according to Numbers 27, God has already appointed Moses, or Joshua to be Moses' successor. And at the beginning of Joshua chapter 1, his time has come. And so let's read the first 11 verses, and we'll do what we usually do. Uh, we'll stand for the public reading of God's word. So let's stand again. Joshua 1 verse 1. 
After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the river Jordan into the land I'm about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all of the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. But be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right, to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. Grab a seat. And again, you'll know back in Genesis 12, God had called Abraham and told him, go to a land. And a land that will be given to your offspring. And that promise of land was repeated to various people, to Isaac, to Jacob. And then it was also repeated to Moses at the burning bush whenever God promised to liberate the people and bring them into the land of the Canaanites. He said it's a land flowing with milk and honey. That's what he said to Moses. And here and now the time has come. But great people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses have come and gone. But God's promises live on. And that is, if there's nothing else you hear tonight in a sense, that's just what I want you to remember. People come and go. Great people, but God's promises live on. The first five books of the Old Testament are over. It is the end of an era, but we're confronted by the endurance of a promise. God is faithful to his word. And that's a recurring theme in this story. And although there have been events and there have been crisis moments, whenever it seemed that God's not going to see this through, It's looking like it's all going to come off the rails. Yet nothing could be further from the truth. And although there is often a time lapse between promises given and promises fulfilled, that does not alter the fact that if God has said it, it will happen. It will inevitably happen because God's word is sure. The only question there is, is a question of time. And here in verse 2, the time regarding this particular promise has come. And so God says, Joshua, get all these people ready. Get them ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I'm about to give to the Israelites. I will give you everywhere you set your foot, just as I promised Moses. And it happens. 
And the rest of the book of Joshua is all about the Israelites entering the land, taking the land, possessing the land, retaining the land. And when you get to the final chapters of Joshua, you read these words. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Not one. Every one was fulfilled. The Bible is packed with promises of God. Some have been fulfilled. Still others are to be fulfilled. And here's just a phrase from Psalm 145 to just take away. The Lord is faithful to all his promises. And this was a key moment for Joshua. He's a new leader. And surely he must have been feeling the pressure, that sense of expectation. And as he listens to God speaking into his life, the words he hears at this point in his life must have meant everything to him. And changed everything because verse 5 says, As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And those were words that Moses had heard. Exact words that Moses had heard. As he had stood by the burning bush, God had said to him, I'll be with you. And he was with Moses. And Joshua had known that. Not only had Joshua known that, he had seen that, he had experienced that. He had watched as God had helped Moses deal with very difficult situations, challenging circumstances. He watched as Moses led people who didn't want to be led. People who didn't like to be led. And so Joshua knew, do you know something, God? If you're saying this, that you will be with me as you were with Moses, I can trust you on this because I have seen evidence that you were with my predecessor. And then God reinforces this because he adds, and I'm never going to leave you. I will never forsake you. In other words, Joshua, I'm guaranteeing you my constant presence. Constant presence. And here is one of those, and you will know this, and I'm not going to really share anything new with you tonight in a sense, But you know that this is one of those God-given promises that were not just for leaders at a specific time in history. Leaders who had huge challenges in front of them. But this is actually a God-given promise to every single one of us. Hebrews 13.5 Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And so it's important that in the midst of your circumstances tonight, and I always recognize that whenever a, a group of people meet together like this, that people come from very different places and very different things going on in your life. Things that some people know about, some things that nobody knows about. Challenging circumstances, crisis. And yet God says, listen, I'll never abandon you. I'll never leave you isolated. I'll never walk away from you. You're not on your own. So second thing to take away tonight, God's faithful to all his promises and you'll never be abandoned by God. And with those encouraging words, in a sense, ringing in Joshua's head, God then says to them, so Joshua, what I want you to do is be strong and be courageous. And he repeats it, he says, be strong. In fact, I want you to be very courageous. And if you take that advice and that challenge in isolation, it sounds great, it sounds motivational when someone says to you, listen, just be strong. Just be strong in this. But whenever what lies ahead is daunting and is intimidating, 
or it seems impossible, then even great motivational words like be strong and be courageous are not enough for us sometimes. But what changes everything about that is the preceding promise. Because I'm going to be with you. And I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. Therefore, you can be strong and you can be very courageous. And therefore, tonight, if you're facing something and you hear some people saying into your life, just be strong here. The thing I want you to know is, yes, you can be strong, you can be courageous, but that's because God is with you and he will never abandon you. But then God issues Joshua a warning. He says, I want you to be careful, Joshua, to do something. And the thing that I want you to do is I want you to be obedient, which is the expectation that God has of his people. I want you, Joshua, to be obedient to the law. Don't turn from it to the right. Don't turn from it to the left. Don't let the book of the law depart from your very mouth. But how? Sounds great. How? Is there a formula, God? Is there a formula that leads to that kind of obedience? How do you ensure that you don't veer off course in the Christian life? How do you keep God's word constantly on your lips so that you can almost taste it? And the psalmist actually talked about God's word being like honey on his lips. We should be able to taste God's word. Well, as God speaks, he actually does provide the formula. Here's the how. Here's how you live a life of obedience, Joshua. You meditate on God's word day and night in other words Joshua carefully constantly absorb the word of God and again this is not just specific advice for Joshua alone as he steps into a new leadership role this discipline this holy habit of biblical meditation should actually characterize every believer And so as it says in Psalm 1, Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it day and night. Some would say biblical meditation is a lost art. And yet if we're going to live obedient, God-directed Christian lives, then we need to rediscover the importance and the faith-strengthening nature of this discipline. I honestly believe that with all of my heart. And the word meditation, and I have said a little bit on this before a couple of years ago, the word meditation is a loaded word in our culture. It's a word that means different things to different people because there are very many different forms of meditation practiced and promoted today. And therefore, when people hear the word meditation, they tend to immediately think of things like transcendental meditation. And yet biblical meditation is very, very different because it's not about emptying your mind. It's about filling your mind. It's meditating on scripture means that you contemplate, you reflect, you ponder, you ruminate on God's word. And I find this definition of biblical meditation incredibly helpful. It is the process of holding a phrase or verse of scripture in mind, pondering it, continually contemplating it, dwelling on it and viewing it from every angle we can think of until it begins to deeply affect 
this. And I said a second ago that it, that it means to ruminate on God's word. And as I understand it, rumination and meditation are like parallel words. And here are a bunch of ruminant animals. And how this lot eat and digest food is fascinating. Let's get a little bit of congregational participation. Who can tell me how ruminant animals eat and digest food? They Correct. As I understand it, they, these animals, ruminant animals, have like several, uh, their stomachs have several compartments, the first of which is known as the rumen. And what these animals do is they bolt down their food real quickly and then they regurgitate it out of the rumen and they regurgitate it back into their mouth. And they keep doing this until the food is thoroughly digested, causing it to become absorbed in their bloodstream so that it becomes a part of their lives. And you can kind of see where I'm going with this. (laughs) That whenever we meditate on God's word, we take scripture, whether it's a phrase, a verse, a truth, a paragraph, a text, we read it, we consume it, we allow it to pass between our hearts and our minds so that it becomes absorbed into our spiritual bloodstream so that it becomes a part of us so that it begins to influence and impact our lives our decisions that whenever we have decisions to make we actually are filtering them through God's word they become so much a part of us that they affect our behavior and our attitude and the words we speak and the thoughts we have and back in the 50s this guy said Meditation upon God's word is fast becoming a lost art among many Christian people. This holy exercise of pondering over the word, chewing it as an animal chews its cud, to get its sweetness and nutritive virtue into the heart and life takes time, which ill fits into the speed of our modern age. Today, most Christians' devotions are too hurried, their lives too rushed. And for Joshua, God's advice, his command for the way ahead, if he was going to pursue obedience, his advice was meditate on the book of the law. Meditate on my word. How often? Day and night. And for us today, this advice still stands. And I would want to suggest that one of the most effective ways to mature as a Christian And to develop a transformed mind, because after all, based on what Paul writes to a church in Rome, God wants to change the way we think. He wants to transform our thinking. And one of the best ways to allow God to do that is where we allow God's word to invade every recess of our hearts and our minds. If daily meditation on God's word is not a feature of your daily life, then let me urge you to rediscover this lost art. And after God finishes commissioning Joshua and speaking into his life, Joshua sends orders. He sends orders, get the provisions ready, because in three days we're crossing the Jordan and we're taking possession of this land that the Lord has given us. And the rest of the book tells the story of that adventure. And Joshua proved to be strong. 
And he proved to be incredibly courageous. But even more important, maybe, he proved to be amazingly obedient. Because it was under his leadership, as the book ends, that we hear that during his lifetime, the people served God. And in one of his closing speeches, before he dies, in one of his closing speeches to two and a half of the tribes, he actually says something that I just want to close with this evening. And these were significant words for us here at Windsor in 2010. And as you leave here tonight, and this is just one way of responding to this evening, what I would love you to do is consider taking these words and meditating on them in the next seven days. Just bolt them down really quick and then keep regurgitating them. Be very careful to obey all the commands and all the instructions that Moses gave you. Love the Lord your God. Walk in his ways. Obey his commands. Hold firmly to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And may God help us to do that.